0: Hey, everybody, I'm Eric Tornberg, co founder, partner, Village Global, a network driven venture firm. And this is an episode of Venture Stories, where we deep dive on topics relating to tech and business with some of the world's leading experts. Hey, everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with Tony Shang of Decentraland and Kyle Samani and Tuchardane of Multicoin Capital. Guys, welcome to the uh, illustrious Village Global Podcast.
1: Hey, Eric and Tony, Tony. Super excited to be on. Thanks for having us, guys.
0: So I thought we could start off, guys, for those who aren't as familiar, why don't you introduce Multicoin Capital and your, your investment thesis?
1: Hey, so this is Kyle. So Multicoin Capital is a crypto fund. Uh, we're based in Austin, Texas. We invest exclusively in crypto. We go all the way from early stage pre-product, you know, idea on a piece of paper, all the way through Bitcoin. And kind of everything in between, we're, we're very comfortable with technical risk, product risk, et cetera, as long as we understand the risks we're taking. We're known for being relatively outspoken, relatively technical, um, and, and pretty hands-on and ultimately value-creative to the founders we work with. And we we focus exclusively in the crypto space. A substantial majority of our investments are tokens, but we have done one private equity deal, and we are seriously looking at our second equity deal. But uh, we do bias towards tokens.
2: Yeah, and to... Jump in with a summary of the investment thesis. This is Tushar, by the way. I think my investment thesis in crypto as an asset class can be summarized as there is a massive new design space that has been created by blockchain technology. Just a bunch of things are now possible that were not possible before, and we see a huge wave of talent moving into the crypto space just like some of the most unbelievable talent in any industry is moving into the crypto space and so when i see this huge new design space of things that are now possible that were not possible before and i see this wave of talent i think there's going to be a lot of value created and captured
0: by this industry let's dive into prediction markets then because you talk a lot about interest in investing in financial primitives and and prediction markets is one of your big examples of that so why don't you explain Exactly what you mean by that and and where you're most excited about its application.
2: Yes, uh, for sure. So by financial primitives, what I mean are when you look at a larger financial product, let's just say, or a financial institution, let's just say a bank, like there are a lot of smaller components that go into becoming a bank. And so the primitives are just the various pieces of Basically, the banking infrastructure, the financial infrastructure in any modern economy. And so the primitives are can be created via smart contracts that then interact in order to construct this larger financial ecosystem in a crypto native economy. And so we think that the financial primitives of prediction markets like Augur or money markets like Compound or like stable coins and leverage like Maker. Those things are really fascinating because if you really do believe that a lot of commerce is going to move into this Web3 world that is all powered by blockchain, then the financial infrastructure of that world will both create and retain significant value.
3: What's what's an example of a use case that's constructed of solely crypto native primitives that maybe is like... You know, maybe an example that is like really easy to understand and maybe one that isn't naturally like something that would be intuitive to people, something that's like only possible because of these crypto native primitives.
2: Yeah. So I'll give you a really easy one. This exists today is you can using something like zero X as a decentralized exchange, go and trade into DAI, which is pegged to the dollar or into any other ERC20 asset. So like the financial primitive here is you have an exchange and you also have a stable coin and both those things can be used today as part of a financial transaction. I think a thinking much further into the future example could be, you know, in a virtual reality world where scarcity is enforced through a blockchain mechanic, having some sort of transaction to buy an in game item will likely be uh, something that uses various crypto primitives in order to facilitate that transaction.
3: That sounds really cool.
2: Yeah, I'm I'm very excited for the combination of VR and blockchain. I think that, you know, uh, just like the real world, we like to display our items and scarcity matters in the value of an item. Like the same thing is going to happen as we spend more time in virtual reality. But I, I don't think I need to convince you of that. Plug Decentraland.
3: Oh, it's an open virtual world that's owned by its users, and it's constructed with mostly crypto primitive, crypto native things. And over time, it'll. Our our goal is for everything to be decentralized and censorship resistant, and all that kind of stuff. If you want to learn more, go to Decentraline.org. But this isn't about me. So Th- this this might seem like kind of a uh, a tangent, but it's it's to me it's related. The security tokens is a really interesting topic that I I, I haven't really been able to wrap my mind around. I know you guys have opinions on it. There's like a version of it where it's just kind of like, you know, a representation of the security in a token format and you get liquidity and all these other benefits that people are excited about. And then there's another version of it where like the whole financial system comes like onto some crypto native financial infrastructure. Can you guys talk a little bit about how you're thinking about that space? Like, are you interested in the first version are you optimistic about the second version where you have like a whole financial system on crypto? Like how how would you guide somebody to think about these these topics?
1: Yeah, so I mean I've kind of come to the realization that with crypto, you know I mean we're literally gutting the ex- infrastructure of kind of existing financial system and rebuilding it from the ground up in a decentralized way. That by definition takes time and so with most of these things I would expect them to go slowly and then quickly. And identifying that tipping point for kind of each call it wave is is pretty challenging but that the whole true in the world of security tokens. I think what we're going to see kind of over the next twelve months, as people launch security tokens, is going to be things that are just like so so excited to just tokenize security that it's really not terribly interesting. Maybe there's some early liquidity for some assets that wouldn't have otherwise had it. Although I'm am you know I'm not sure who the buyers are who are showing up on the other side of those markets, but you know we'll see, or at least buyers that aren't you know trying to buy at a fifty percent discount to you know fair fair market value. That's kind of TBD. I think longer term, the idea of, of freeing your, of freeing ourselves from kind of the legacy brokerage firms and prime brokers and retail brokers and the only exchanges of, of securities really unlocks a whole bunch of new things. My favorite example of this is simply as Maker, um, is is the ability to go levered long against your own assets. The more I think about it and kind of think about like, what's like the truly self-sovereign future of the world? And I think a very pretty obvious component of that is the ability to go le- go levered long against basically any of your own assets. And the idea of being able to do that in a very simple and easy way using something like Maker seems quite, quite compelling. Uh, and then being able to le- pull that into something like Augur. Obviously, you can kind of conceptually do the same types of trades today, but it's just so fragmented across the financial ecosystem. It's so hard to, to understand. And the beautiful thing about tokenizing everything using a standard like ERC-20 uh, is that now all of these pieces plug and play together. And so you can just do like much more advanced. A, you can visualize your portfolio and understand it much better across a range of assets. And you unlock all of the basically tooling of debt, derivatives, contract for differences, you know, um, leverage, whatever. All of these things can immediately become interoperable, free, so to speak, because they're all based on something like the ERC-20 standard. So that that's like a decade-long process, though, for that to play out. That's going to take a long time. And uh, the early days, it's just going to be about getting exchanges up and running, getting Things regulated and done correctly, and only once that kind of achieves some passes some tipping point, that I, I think it starts to get a lot more interesting.
3: So, so would you do you think that it's like it starts with the path towards that that like crypto native future? It's like self sovereign financial system starts with some of these baby steps of like tokenizing securities, tokenizing existing securities, and Having the like legality exist off chain, meaning like you know you'd need a way to reverse a transaction if it was the wrong transaction, things like that, like it's, like totally not censorship resistant, crypto anarchic thinking. Do you think that's part of the like the the path to that future, or do you think they're two separate like areas that will progress independently, and then like the you know one one will become dominant, or and one won't?
2: I think it's the latter in that. They kind of progress independently, but also interdependently because they will all share the same infrastructure. I think that, like, it's a lot easier to build things and achieve the future that you want if you decide to follow the laws. Like, you know, and securities laws are are pretty important laws. Like, some of them feel pretty arbitrary, but, like, they were put in there for a reason. And, like, uh, it really does help people, you know, prevent being taken advantage of. That being said, like freedom and liberty are also very important. And I think crypto enables like a good blend of both and experimentation on both. Like a lot of innovation will happen in the regulated side of the world, which will then benefit like even the unregulated parts of crypto. Because if you build infrastructure like Maker that allows you to take out leverage against an asset that you own and you use that against your commercial real estate equity tokens, which are completely censorship, censorable. And also like just off-chain governance, everything that will then be useful for your crypto native use cases. And in the long run, I think that just tokenizing like shares of Apple stock and putting it on the blockchain will be kind of akin to PDF thing, a newspaper and putting it online in 1995 and thinking like this is how the Internet is going to change news as an industry. Like that's ridiculous, actually, you know, like it, it, I guess it's a good start. Like a PDF of a newspaper online is like not a bad thing. It is better. And you like solve a lot of real problems on like, well, delivery is free now. And there's not, none of this like environmental impact and like wasted newspaper, et cetera. But like the real impact is with the Internet native news system, which is like something like Twitter and Medium and like a bunch of news websites and Facebook, et cetera. Not PDFing a newspaper and putting it online. So I'm really excited for the new securities that will be created because of this technology. Think about things like, oh, well, if you hold shares in this asset, like you get a discount on this product or these new types of securities, like the Binance token, right? Like that is a weird type of security. It's not something like, you know, what people have seen before. Where it's both a utility in terms of be, like being used to pay fees on this exchange, but also has a claim on the cash flow of the exchange. Like that's a, that's never existed before. So uh, I'm really excited for both the existing infrastructure to be ported over to blockchain, but mostly excited about the crypto native infrastructure being created.
3: And Binance is actually a really interesting example that you bring up because I don't, I don't think that they would characterize themselves as a security token, even though they behave quite a lot like a security, which might be a good transition to asking about your guys' take on Ripple, which you recently commented. You are fairly certain that it is a security. Maybe explain why you feel that way. But first, like, why is it bad that it would be uh, considered a security? Why Why would the price go down if that was the case? And if, you know, you, you just mentioned some some positive things about regulation and securities, how how why why in this case is that bad? Like, how are you thinking about it?
1: Yeah. So existentially, there's nothing wrong with an asset being security in the case, We expect that it would be bad for the price of any modern crypto assets, because I think a substantial majority of exchanges if, you know, Becoming an SEC registered exchange is an extraordinarily tough endeavor. If you go to the SEC's website, there's something like 12 reg- regulated um, exchanges. Those are like the NYSE, the NASDAQ, the CME, those kinds of things. Very old, large institutions and literally none of the crypto exchanges are um, SEC regulated exchanges. And so if Ripple is deemed a security, then the SEC is going to send mandates or orders or, you know, um, something, some orders to the crypto exchanges definitely the ones based in the US and arguably even the ones abroad and say do, do not trade this asset and given that like ripple is only a single asset of many assets that these exchanges trade it's extremely likely they will comply so that they don't have any problems from the you know US federal government um and they can still keep running their business just not trade that one asset and if that does happen as we expect it would then liquidity will dry up and when liquidity dries up typically asset prices plummet because literally there's no way to get out
2: also there would be just a massive negative impact on Ripple Inc, the company for doing an unregistered securities offering. Like, and they might have to give some money back to investors. Like it it would, it would be just such a huge distraction on Ripple. And given the fact that like their use case is, you know, use this to move money across borders for regulated banking institutions, they're not going to want to do business with an organization that did an unregistered securities offering. And like, Clearly didn't understand the regulations in the countries in which they were operating. So, like, it it just kills a use case for the token in this specific case.
3: But what, what makes Ripple so much more likely to be deemed a security than any other, like, token that has done a big sale?
1: So, I say relative to most other assets, the first is that the Ripple system is entirely centralized. Ripple Inc. produces all of the software for Ripple. The only thing that really the Ripple blockchain is intended for is to be used in conjunction with the Ripple software that they sell to banks. Ripple Inc. owns something like 65% of the outstanding supply, and I believe when they started with something like 99% of the supply or 100%. And so they they still own a substantial majority of all of the tokens. On top of that, it, you know you, the, the Ripple Inc. will counter this and say, well, the blockchain is decentralized, and while well, users can configure nodes. And while that's true, if you look uh, on a technicality basis, if you actually look at like downloading the Ripple software and running it, you know, the default nodes, the or they're called UNLs, forget unique node lists that you know, the default one that comes with Ripple software, all of those nodes point to Ripple servers. And basically, as of today, although this is not this is not formally specified in the Ripple Consensus Protocol, in practice it ends up being that whatever Ripple servers say ends up being consensus and what drives the network forward. So, you know, there's all kinds of weird technicalities that Ripple Inc. has tried to put forth that it's a decentralized system, but that's just like utter nonsense. Um, this thing is 100% controlled by Ripple Inc. In basically every way you can imagine, the software, the user interface to the software, the token supply, uh, and then obviously it's an investment contract in that they are selling, uh, they've sold hundreds of millions of dollars of tokens on the open market. So and it just, that gets, it's crystal clear security in our view.
2: And just to, to be very clear, like, being the security is not inherently a bad thing. That's that's not the point here. I, I think that, you know, securities like are a valuable component of our financial system. It's just that in this case, for Ripple Inc. to have done an unregistered securities offering and sold you know securities without complying with regulation, like just breaks the use case for Ripple because we, we really don't think that banks are going to want to do business
0: with Ripple Inc. if they are found to have violated securities laws. Let's go back to tokenized uh, securities for a second. There seems to be sort of a heated debate about them. How would you sort of frame or characterize the the debate and and where – what side are you most sympathetic towards?
1: I I mean like – so I think the debate kind of broadly is characterized maybe by Tony's post about a week ago about crypto anarchists versus incrementalists. Uh, I I tend to view the world specifically for securities as more in the incrementalist view than the anarchist view because securities are, by definition, a function of the state and the government. I think in the short run, let's say next 12 to 24 months, I think the implications in aggregate are not terribly interesting. There will be some interesting experiments and use cases, and like there will be some areas where there is a liquidity premium that's unlocked that did not previously exist. But I don't think as, as an investor, like we're not investing in equities of like random assets. That's not interesting to us as crypto investors We're looking for our things that are fundamentally, you know, crypto native and unique. And so the things we get excited about when we think about tokenized securities are what happens when you can take for granted that a substantial majority of the world's assets are tokenized and what kind of new infrastructure can you enable because now the financial primitives are modular and permissionless or at least mostly permissionless such that you can move them around in a a much more flexible way. And I think that unlocks all kinds of cool new things. Yep. And you can take
2: the proceeds from stitching those various financial primitives together to create a financial product, take those proceeds and pay them out to like an equity token. And so you can create these crypto native securities. You can create securities that are not only valuable because of like the code of laws or the justice system in the country of the issuer of the security, you can make them valuable in like the world where code is law, where like however much money this smart contract makes, like gets paid out to this equity token.
0: What, what happens if uh, I lose my private key to my house or or something of that importance? Yep.
2: You know, so for assets that have off-chain governance in a sense where there is a legal system and like it doesn't matter who owns the like tokenized key to your house. If you live in the United States, like the US government gets to basically like override that. Um, if there's a court order and say like, yeah, no, this now belongs to this other person now. So, like, there, you know, having the blockchain be the system of record or like the system of truth, like it, it's just not going to work. One possible way to reap the huge advantages to moving the infrastructure of securities onto the blockchain, things like faster settlement, things like much lower administrative and compliance costs, uh, things like local liquidity, et cetera. In order to get those without compromising on the fact that like, if I lose the tokenized key to my house, like I still wanna be able to get into my house, is like perhaps a system where your tokenized securities are subject to an arbitration contract That is a part of the smart contract platform on which they live, where that arbitration contract has the ability to overturn transactions and basically force block producers to process invalid state transitions through some clever mechanic. One idea of this would be like on EOS, like the arbitrators, like they have a free market of arbitration uh, providers who you can bind your transaction to. It's opt-in only. So, like, if I am selling you a security, we can choose to opt into this arbitrator or not, or I can just tie the security like smart contract, the token itself, to the arbitrator permanently. And then I can make sure that, like, if there is a judgment in, like, you know, in a U.S. federal court that that can be executed. And if, you know, let's say someone stole my money and like the police and like find that person and the courts actually judge that he's guilty, then like I can get my money back. But you can still get all of the benefits of the blockchain technology through this kind of arbitration system.
0: Zooming out a little bit, you uh, your most recent post was on the, the Web3 stack. Talk a little bit about what you were trying to achieve with that mm-hmm. post and uh, what if anything you've learned, you know, in the process of writing it or from or from conversations happening afterwards.
1: Yes. I mean, the reason I write generally is because it helps me kind of articulate my own thoughts. And in particular, with a post like the Web3 stack, which is extremely broad, like I just start writing and kind of new things come to my mind. And I start building and iterating. And then I share that with my team. And then they provide feedback. And then I share that with other people. And they provide more feedback. And so the process of actually producing the post is, is extremely educational. And I've done this, you know, enough times now that I understand that in a pretty, pretty big way. So that, that's a general motivation for writing. And with this post in particular, my goal was just kind of, you know, people always talk about the Web3 stack. I talk to entrepreneurs almost every day who are always excited about the future of Web3 and building on Web3 technologies. And one day, about a month ago, it just kind of occurred to me. I was like, you know, everyone keeps talking about this thing. Like, what what the hell is it? Um, and I like Googled like for diagrams of the Web3 stack, and I really didn't find anything. And so I said, okay, well, this seems kind of silly. If we're all talking about building out this massive new stack that's going to power the future of the internet uh, and the future of finance, it seems like there should be a, a decent visualization of it. So I went ahead and I sat down and I made a, in, in PowerPoints and I was kind of my, my first sketch tool and made a very ugly version. Uh, and then eventually kind of iterated on that, made it pretty. Uh, and that kind of ultimately resulted in, in the post. As I started writing it, then, you know, I kind of dove into what I considered like, the, you know, primarily the core stack all of the the optional components on the right side of that of that diagram uh, it was it was going to be way too much to dive into each of those and so i figured i would kind of just focus on the core stack and and the kind of key enablers.
3: Uh, why why do you think so much um like given all of the boxes in that diagram and there are lots of boxes why do you think there has been so much focus on like consensus out of all of them and do you guys believe that that's that's the like the rational allocation of capital and energy? Or and do you think value will accrue there? Like, h- how would you think about, you know, investing up and down the stack, which I know that you guys have done?
1: Yeah. So we had had this hypothesis, I think, before we bothered to make the diagram. Um, and it became, I think, much more clear as a result of making it that we, we believe in the long run. The consensus layer is probably the most important layer of the stack and will ultimately drive what accrues value. The reason is is... So- like if you look at just the name, it's consensus, but specifically it's social consensus. And what is money? Well, money is fundamentally a, the social consensus phenomena. And so I think it's just kind of partly stated in the name there. If you look at kind of the history of of how this stuff all played out, the real breakthrough of Bitcoin, right, was it wasn't cryptography really, it wasn't economics. I mean, it was really figuring out a way to do dis di, distributed distrustful global consensus on a single canonical state of ledger. Um, and consensus was the real breakthrough there. And that's what then has caused this kind of wave of, of innovation thereafter. I don't really hear people framing the discussion around consensus in that, that light. They typically are just focused on how do we make consensus better? How do we, you know, make Pareto and Pareto improvements to, uh, you know, break the Pareto frontier and making improvements to consensus? But I suspect in the long run that that's probably going to be the defining layer. The other kind of flip side of that is, Consensus is fundamentally mutually exclusive. You can't have ASIC proof of work and you can't have proof of stake. I know there are some weird things like the Casper overlay, but like that's just a single new model. My point is you can't have delegated proof of stake and definitive special relay. Those cannot coexist in one system. You have to pick. So I expect, you know, given the trade-off between decentralization, scalability, and safety... I expect there's ultimately going to be kind of an optimal solution that that really solves all of our kind of global um, state problems. So that's where we naturally gravitate. I'll say the converse to all of this is if you look at the other layers of the stack, I have very low, if any conviction, about any of them becoming the kind of defining layer. And so believing that the consensus layer is the most probable is not saying anything with a very high probability other than saying it's somewhat larger than zero.
3: There's been tons of projects trying to innovate at the consensus layer. Do you feel like that's going to continue to happen or do you think the tradeoff space will be sufficiently explored in some like reasonable time frame and we'll have, you know, like a few archetypes that people are experimenting with, but largely the tradeoffs are like well defined.
1: Typically in systems, you typically start innovate at the bottom of the stack and move up because the things at the top rely on the things at the bottom. So I suspect the next two to four years is going to be a lot of focus on consensus and then things will move up, move up the stack from there obviously there's already people playing with all the layer two things and those will continue to iterate. But for now, I, I think I, I rationally think that people should be running every experiment possible at the consensus layer.
2: Yeah. And then like the next levels of optimization will be, you know, things like optimizing the VM and optimizing just programming tools that developers can use to actually create various dApps or smart contracts and various libraries. And just the, the innovation will keep on moving farther up that stack and, eventually it will be as mature as you know like a web app today we don't we don't, don't, re, we we don't, don't like
0: re-innovate, re-innovate, reinnovate on how tcP IP works anymore are there certain layers of the stack that you think are underserved right now in a way that you think people should be focusing on it right now
1: so I mean the biggest problem in crypto today is scalability the second biggest problem probably is privacy
0: and then the third
1: is like you can call it just kind of like friction around the whole ecosystem you know there vitalik has a tweet and i've referenced it in that post about kind of the five ways you can scale blockchains i think there's a sixth which he leaves off the list but but those five kind of boil down to basically lots of uh little chains you can have big blocks you can have layer two you can have kind of compressed data on chain and you can have sharding those are the five vitalik mentions and then i think the sixth one is i think there are Uh, Ways to have break the pre-do frontier and improvements in consensus. Vitalik, I think, seems to disagree with that view. But those are basically kind of the fundamental ways to scale these things. If you look at those six kind of elements, there are a lot of people working on all of them. Of those, in my view, the most important are probably consensus and then compressing on-chain data. And like, you know, the kind of most high-profile example of that being discussed today is Schnorr signatures for Bitcoin, which, you know, it's expected they'll add about a 25% capacity improvement to Bitcoin. I think that's not that terribly interesting. Um, what I think is much more interesting when you talk about compressing data on chain is the use of zero-knowledge proofs to enable massively scalable chains. Coda protocol is kind of the first one that's implementing this in a meaningful way. And I expect over the next few years, as zero-knowledge proofs become more mature, digestible, and understandable by by us laypeople, that uh, we'll see a lot more experimentation there. And that I expect with very high conviction that in the long run, zero-knowledge proofs will be a, an integral component uh, in every major chain, enormous scalability um, improvements.
3: Could for the for those that are listening that don't know what zero knowledge proofs are, could you define it and kind of explain how they could be used to compress information?
1: Yeah. So the most simple example of a zero knowledge proof is using your private key in Bitcoin or Ethereum to sign a transaction. Right. The whole kind of point of these public systems is you've got a public key and the only one who can produce a valid signature to your public key is whoever owns private key. By definition, whenever you sign something with your private key the person verifying your signature cannot see your private key. Um, so that is a zero-knowledge proof. That's public key cryptography that's been around since the late 70s or early 80s. So when I, I use the term zero-knowledge proof, I'm referring to something substantially more sophisticated than that, although the most kind of primitive forms of zero-knowledge proofs are have been around for 30 years now. What I'm referring to more specifically is kind of what is in Zcash. And then this is a, a zero-knowledge proof system called SNARKs. And then there's a kind of a newer um, zero-knowledge proof model called STARKs. That has a, some very interesting characteristics to it, and there's another one that's also fairly new called Bulletproofs. The amazing things about these three systems is that with these three systems, I, as a computer, I can run any arbitrarily complex computation on any input I choose, and I can, you know, generate that the the result of that computation. I can share the result with you, and I can generate a, a proof demonstrating that I ran that computation correctly, uh, meaning like per per the function stated, without revealing the inputs. And what's amazing about that and you can do this for any arbitrarily complex computation. We think this is going to have all kinds of profound impacts for trustless computing. The first real manifestation of this today is Zcash, basically, with private transactions. You can kind of, the next logical step from there, of course, is not just private sending of money, but private smart contracts. Um, and we expect that will happen, you know, in the relatively near-ish future. If you go kind of a few steps further with zero-knowledge proofs, you can nest them recursively. And basically, the idea is being that the verifier is anyone who wants to verify the kind of end of the chain. Uh, and so the idea can be basically if you have a zero knowledge proof of the last block stating that last block was valid, you have a state transition for the next block and a zero knowledge proof for the kind of the head of the chain. Basically with those three things, any computer anywhere in the world can verify the validity of the chain. And so the idea with this kind of by nesting the by nesting zero knowledge proofs uh, is that you can enable blockchains to be massively more scalable. Uh, because the amount of data that any validating node needs to download is on the order of a megabyte or maybe two, as opposed to something that, that grows with every single block, which is kind of what we currently have. Uh, and in this system, in this view of the future, we should be able to scale blockchains in I think many orders of magnitude without even making changes to consensus.
3: Now, that's pretty crazy. So when like with with a lot of the the blockchains we have today you have to download a whole history of all of the transactions to ver- like verify that your 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 node is in sync and like all the transactions are valid and you're saying if you can use recursive snarks then you really all of the you you basically can compress it all into one zero knowledge proof that contains all of the other zero knowledge proofs that have contain like you know all of the transactions or information in, in the blockchain is that right
1: that's Correct. Yes. Simplification, but correct.
0: Zooming out a little bit, I want to play a game we're going to call Request for Products, crypto edition, where or projects rather. Let's say we are you know, sitting in front of dozens of entrepreneurs and engineers who are, who are very talented and looking for things to build in the space. And I'll, I'll say sort of a, a subdomain within the space, and I want to hear you guys say where you want to see people innovate. How about privacy?
1: I actually that's a very, very point of view on this one, this one which is, is I, I want to, to see a chain that lever- leverages that is, uses Stark's for off-chain private smart contracts, and then can uh, can embed Stark's into a uh, recursive kind of compressed proof that submits on chain, and then the chain itself is using recursive Stark's to extend the tip of the chain. In my view, that's kind of the ultimate layering of zero knowledge proofs, and it gives you all the benefits of massively scalable chains, ultimate privacy, and ultimate off-chain computation. This is super advanced stuff, and this is pretty pretty out in the what's it called it's pretty out there but i've been talking to a bunch of people about it and we think it's theoretically possible <laughs> oh and then more tangibly usable privacy so like sapling is coming out for zcash in a couple months it's a major major upgrade to zcash it will make shielded transactions usable uh, i would very 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 much like to see people make ios wallets android wallets linux mac right hardware wallet support we need to actually make shielded transactions usable. For all practical purposes today on Zcash, shielded
0: transactions are not usable. Yeah, the topics I was going to say next were, were stable coins and scalability, but I'd sort of like to just broaden it a little bit to where, where do you, what spaces do you guys want to see people innovating on and in what capacity beyond what, we, what we've just spoken about?
3: Yeah, I
2: actually think stable coins is, is a fascinating one of those. I think we have done more research into stable coins than like anyone else we've met. And like we found that. Really, there are only three models. There's the collateral-backed model, uh, where something like Maker, where you have on-chain collateral. There's the off-chain collateral-backed model, something like Tether or True USD, where there's US dollars in a bank account or gold in a vault or something. Uh, and then there's like the seniorage Shares model, where there's uh, you know like some way to contract supply through bonds and some way to expand supply through like literally printing money. And that's been kind of it for a while. There's, there haven't been any new ideas on how to create stability. We've seen like some attempts at new ideas, but nothing that like has actually worked and, and nothing that's been brought to fruition. I, I think seeing a new type of stablecoin would be fascinating, or if not that, like a new way to market the on-chain collateral type stablecoin, something like Maker with better marketing. To create more supply would be interesting, but mostly I would love to see a new type of stablecoin altogether.
3: When we talked to Joey, he mentioned an idea for a stablecoin where the community—it's basically governance forward stablecoin where the community would decide together to change the monetary policy in service of a, a stable peg. Like obviously, I, I don't really know; I haven't thought too much about it. But is that a model that you've heard of, or? Like, do you have hot takes on that?
2: Yeah, my initial reaction is, oh, God, why? Um, <laughs> the average person is not qualified to vote on monetary policy. Like, that sounds like a terrible idea. It's just like if we had dollar weighted votes on monetary policy, like we literally elected Donald Trump as the president of the United States. Like, I don't trust <laughs> democracy in that way anymore.
1: Combine governance with hot takes, I would like to see a lot more people Combined systems that are kind of more representative, of, you know, there's a lot of focus on governance these days. And there tends to be, tends to be a very strong bias towards either direct democracy or pretty close to direct democracy or liquid democracy, maybe republic type stuff. But if you look at kind of all modern republics and democracies, they all have checks and balances between the three major branches of governments. So when I look at something like Tezos, for example, Tezos is probably the purest expression of direct democracy. And I suspect with pretty high conviction that that will backfire at some point. There's a reason we have the constitution. And if we're going to go away, you know, big, the beauty of Bitcoin is they say, not, out with all this governance nonsense, we have an objectivity. One hash is one vote. I don't care if you like the rules or not. These are the rules. You cannot game them. And you have to play by the rules. And like, and that works. It scales very well. If, if we're going to make the argument that, hey, we should introduce subjectivity into the whole process and have humans and debates and all these things, then like going to direct democracy seems like a very poor idea. Not to, to plug EOS here, but actually, like, although EOS doesn't frame themselves in this way, EOS today, to some degree, has this, this process is in there. The, um, arbitration market basically provides, is a kind of a private, privatized judiciary. The block producers basically act as the executive branch. Uh, and then DAP developers, your I code, are basically the legislature. Dan Larimer has talked about this kind of lightly, but, but it's of the systems talking about governance today. Uh, you know, on-chain governance, it's the one that at least most closely rep- represents kind of a three branches of government. And I think there's a lot more interesting experimentation to be had around that area in governance rather than just, oh, yes, you can vote because you have a token.
2: Yeah. And, and like like the, the experimentation like on governance will be really interesting. interesting. But when it comes to something, something like, like monetary policy, I I really doubt that correct
0: democracy is the answer. Yeah. I, I want to go back to monetary policy in a second. But first, because you brought up EOS, can you talk a little bit about maybe frame the d- debate for, for people aren't aware between sort of Vitalik and, you know, Ethereum's approach and down the armor and EOS's approach.
1: Yeah. So I mean, yeah. generally we've been public about this. We generally, or at least I generally support um, inline dictators over public governance systems. My view is that if you are talented enough to build a blockchain, you are probably talented enough to make uh, a lot of the hardest decisions that will need to be made in the life. the early, early stages of life of that blockchain. So I, I pretty strongly prefer that person or that small team have very strongly outsized influence basically to the point of being enlightened dictators. I know that's not a popular view among most folk in the community, but that's the one I hold. Um I do think there needs to be a credible plan to decentralize governance over time, but in the early days and like, I'd say the first five years qualifies at a minimum as early days. I, I think that you need a lot more top down control just to make things move, uh, get things done. Vitalik basically has done this. He has not provided a credible plan for like decentralizing governance or authority, but like, Today, Vitalik is an enlightened dictator of Ethereum. um, And I think it has served Ethereum remarkably well. He's made a few mistakes here and there, but for the most part, it's been a pretty relatively smooth ride given the things that were out of his control. And, you know, Dan Larimer and the EOS folks have said kind of since inception, hey, this is going to be a community project. And that was true right from the very beginning, from launch. Block One did not run the first, the kind of, I think they called it the ABP or the appointed block producer. They have not, they are not running block producers. They are not allowing the ecosystem funds they seed. To in any way be affiliated with block producers, so they're being they're being pretty rigid about saying, "Hey, we built the software, and we are going to let the community run the thing and figure it out." Uh, it's a very aggressive experiment, and we we will see what happens.
3: Uh, at the same time, like the there are lots of properties in EOS that are highly centralized, and that's where a lot of the criticism from the broader crypto community is coming from. I I don't necessarily think that you believe that that's a problem. And in particular with governance, it sounds like you believe that a more centralized approach to start makes sense. And I, t- I tend to agree as well. But one thing that I've been curious about is with EOS, do you believe there is a plan to evolve towards something that is more of a like fully decentralized, fully censorship resistant kind of um, smart contract protocol? Or do you think it's carving out a niche that's more in like you know make these trade-offs like you trade a bit of decentralization trade a bit of some of these other things in order to achieve like you know faster decision making or scalability or, or any number of these things
2: yeah so i i think the question is really like how decentralized do you need to be decentralization is a means to an end it is not the goal in and of itself that's That's sometimes forgotten by a lot of people in the community is like, we aren't decentralizing to decentralize. It's because you you want to get a benefit. Censorship resistance is a really valuable benefit. And I think that there are multiple ways to accomplish censorship resistance. You do not need to be decentralized. Everyone's running their own full node level of decentralization in order to provide an adequate level of censorship resistance, where... And we actually published a a paper about this. It it is on our web. It's on our blog. It's in response to Spencer Bogart from Blockchain Capital's paper about delegated proof of stake and platform grade censorship resistance. And there we talk about how censorship would actually play out. Where if a nation state like actually goes after one of the 21 EOS block producers who censors a transaction, well, one, there are many backup block producers who are incentivized to call out a current block producer for censorship in order to get themselves elected and get that you know, bad block producer out. And you know, if you're elected, you make more money. So like that's part of the security model here. And having a bunch of backup block producers available means that as soon as censorship is detected by the network, then the block producer who censored a transaction gets voted out. So like, is that decentralized enough to provide adequate censorship resistance? Like maybe there's, I think that there's a real chance that it is. Will we find out until there's a real test? No. I mean, we can theorize all day, but until there's empirical evidence, like it's all just theory. And so hopefully we'll see a test sometime soon. And I think that would be very, very educational to finding like how much decentralization is actually necessary.
3: Got it. So would it be fair to characterize the kind of the the your your position as that the the current design may very well be censorship resistant for the reasons that you just said and, and stated said in the post, and that the kind of the impasse that the US community has with the like say you know the the ETH community or the Bitcoin community is that they don't believe it's censorship resistant enough or decentralized enough, but you, like you guys think that potentially. Uh, we'll, we'll not know until, you know, we have many tests, but potentially it could be enough for like any arbitrary app or use case.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we manage capital and so therefore we need to look at the world probabilistically. You know, we're not looking at this like idealists. We are When we're talking about this, uh, this isn't necessarily like how I think the world should be or like it, there's no like moral or ethical sort of judgment here at all. I'm just looking at the world as like where I think the probabilities are. And I think that there is a significant probability that the delegated proof of stake model is decentralized enough to provide adequate censorship resistance. And I think that the market is underpricing the possibility that delegated proof of stake is actually censorship resistant, because if it is, then all of this experimentation around different levels of consensus like become far less important. Because, like, then we have the answer already. Like, we found, you know, VCR, like, and like, not, no one else innovated on that for at least 10 years, right? Like, or you found TCP IP and like, that's it. You don't change it later.
1: Yeah, yeah. just add a little more color there, right? Like, let's take Decentraland as an example, right? Like, even if Decentraland is a screaming success, I see, it, I see it pretty hard to believe that there's any state of the world in which governments or other sovereign entities, like, try and take down the U.S. blockchain because Decentraland is too successful, there is certainly a case made that, are like, if, you know, obviously the Bitcoin maximalists believe this, which is like, you know, government can't seize my money. And if that is your you know, only design criteria, then, of course, EOS doesn't make sense. But there's a whole design space of things. Decentraland is a great example. Basically, all securities tokens fall in this bucket and quite a few other things that, you know, it's much more sensible to use something like an EOS than it is to build on something like an Ethereum, uh, given, you know, current performance implications. So, I think that's, that's, that's quite clear to us. And we believe that with pretty high conviction. Will that work in the long run? TBD, but like sh- certainly today um, is worth exploring. I think the other thing that's really compelling about EOS, and we, we've touched on this a little bit thus far, is that they have arbitration built into the protocol there, or they have a, a market for uh, private arbitration services. It seems very obvious to me that if we're ever going to have meaningful commerce take place in blockchains, there has to be some sort of arbitration system saying code is law. Like there's, turns out there's a reason in the real world that code is not law and that we have, we have judges, like, and we have a court system, uh, because it turns out humans have problems and they have disputes and stuff. And so, you know, like obviously people are working on, uh, adding arbitration kind of, let's call it arbitration forums to Ethereum, right? And other smart contract platforms. Uh, I think it's generally reasonably compelling that this exists even at the protocol layer, basically in EOS. And I expect on a long enough time scale that people, will, a lot of especially businesses, will find a lot of value in not having to necessarily often do a specific arbitration service for some transaction, but they have kind of a, a one they could fall back on at the protocol layer. Uh, and I expect that a lot of humans will value that service.
0: Yeah, let's talk about. You know, I'm curious. You said a couple things that are interesting. One is that you guys look at the world probabilistically instead of you know idealistically as a sort of default vantage point. Given that you guys want a you know want to fund, I'm curious: are there moments in which you guys where there's a tension between those two in, in the sense of like, do you ever go a bit too overboard on the crypto anarchy versus crypto incrementalism perhaps, or say, Hey, here's a project that I really want to, to to exist, but unsure if it'll capture value, but it's really important for the ecosystem. And, and there are times where you've had to make that trade off where it just doesn't make sense for the fund, but you really want it to exist. I think it's important.
1: I mean, we, we certainly debate it. And, you know, I think probably I within the firm am the one who typically likes to at least think about those and push them, but um, we we have a pretty good process in place, both with the rest of the team as well as between Dushar and myself, who are the ultimate decision makers, to kind of recognize, hey, if, if we can't argue a coherent thesis for this, then it, like, will not we will not invest in it. Fortunately, within the firm, we have a pretty regular policy about writing, and so you know, if I can't write a coherent thesis that I would be comfortable putting on our blog, then we're probably not going to invest in it. Is a pretty good litmus, litmus test. Dushar acts as a pretty good sanity check for the crazy things, things that I like, to, I like to I like to explore.
2: I mean, like. I think that there is room for a lot of things within the crypto world to be funded by donations. The, the thing is when you bring on investors, like you are, you are making a promise to make them more money, right? Like that, that's what that social contract really means. And yeah, I don't care if they're utility tokens or security tokens or whatever they are. Like if you're selling it to investors, if you're selling your tokens to a hedge fund, like, you are making an implicit promise to go and make them more money. And so and like the same thing for us. Like when we go and raise capital from limited partners, like we are doing that because we are promising to be fiduciaries and make them more money. So like I think that there's a lot more room for donations to fund public goods in the crypto world. And personally, like I'm I have donated to several of these and like and happy to donate to more if like if there was a platform, something like a Patreon or like a, an Indiegogo or something where like those things could be funded. Like that would actually be a cool thing to innovate. Um, going back to your earlier question.
0: Yeah, that is an interesting request for, for product. Are there, I mean, let's say it into value accrual a little bit. Let's talk about aggregation theory, which is, you know, the theory in, that Ben Thompson posed for how, you know, economics of web 2.0 work. What does aggregation theory in sort of a blockchain-based world look like as it relates to value accrual? Oh, it's like taken
2: to the extreme because like all of the tech is open source and like all the networks are permissionless which means you can bootstrap on like you can bootstrap liquidity on your network on your competitor's network so like aggregation theory just means that if you can own the relationship with the end customer you have all of the power in that supply chain and that value chain and i think that in crypto that is absolutely the case think about it this way i'll give you an example Uh, the brave browser which is powered by or like with the basic attention token is like the crypto token that goes along with it. They recently just announced uh, Tor support, and they're running Tor nodes. Um, and like Tor is an interesting, you know, platform. Uh, right now, it's like basically altruistic. You know, you only run a Tor node because you want to help provide privacy to the Tor network. However, there is a protocol out there that actually raised a pretty significant round recently called Orchid. That's building Tor with a token. So you can incentivize creating this like effectively global VPN in a, in a sense, or like just helping enforce privacy globally. But now that Brave has added Tor support and like will likely go and just take Orchid's tech once it comes out and is released as an open source product and incorporates it into the Brave browser that already has like three or five million daily active users, some like actually significant user number, then like, They just totally, you know, wrecked the whole Orchid business model entirely. And that network's gone because you can take their tech and supply it to your customers. And it is literally the same exact product. I mean, look at what, like, you know, Instagram did to Snapchat when they copied stories. Like, no one uses Snapchat anymore. Now take that to the extreme. Imagine if they had been able to just copy the code effectively. And it's not, you know, command C, command B trivial, but it's easier than if the code was closed source. And so, like this just means that the owning the end user relationship is everything in capturing value in crypto.
3: Do you think the nature of owning the end user changes if we move more towards an internet that's built on top of crypto? because in web two aggregation theory, Ben Thompson talks a lot about how these apps like Facebook and Google build data modes to to deliver these magical experiences to users to keep them coming back so that that relationship is very sticky, and they are able to build that, like you know, huge number of users that they have a direct interface with. Do you see that changing at all? When you know, maybe the 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 interfaces don't actually capture that data. That data is like self sovereign, and it's like the user owns it. Like, how do you how do you see that all playing out?
1: Yeah, so uh, I, I think that the barriers come down quite a bit. Basically, as you said, all the kind of modern web two kind of web monopolies are all based on, you know, really owning the back end or owning the user's data. Uh, and so as a result of having that lock in, then the front end is kind of whatever, but the front end is just a pull to the back end. Well, here we're really inverting the model. We're saying if the back end is open, anyone can immediately take the back end that already exists and you're competing purely at the front end. That generally provides much less lock in, um, which ultimately, you know, creates a more competitive market to innovate for consumers. So for consumers that's a great thing also you know they'll have self-sovereign control of their data which is also a good thing. It's going to make it I think extremely hard to develop monopolies because I don't think there will be in most instances a way to develop meaningful network effects when, when you're competing on the front end for an open back end.
3: So if I if I were to combine kind of the things that you were saying to with what you just said Kyle, the aggregating the, the the relationship with the the user is still going to be critical for all of these projects in the crypto space, but the the competition for the, those users will be more fierce, like fewer ways to build network effects, lower barriers, and maybe like less of a extreme power law distribution where there are a few really big winners. I'm just, I'm kind of building on this. Correct me if this isn't what you guys mean. And, and more like, you know, maybe more a world where that can support more competitors at that layer.
1: Yeah, I, I believe that will be true. And specifically, it allow for a lot more competition, specifically the algorithmic layer. So, you know, if you've got the underlying data, then basically you've got kind of two layers on top of that. You've got to call it all the algorithms, and then you've got the basically the, the visual, you know, the UI. I, I suspect that for the most part, we, we are kind of at the pretty much far end of what we're going to accomplish with kind of modern web design, given we have a two-dimensional space we're working with. AR kind of creates some weird new opportunities there, but within kind of a two-dimensional playing field, for the most part, I think our UX is pretty close to as good as it's going to get. With algorithms though, right? Like if you think about it, you could have all of your data at Facebook and have people who kind of create different algorithms on top of that. So one is more news oriented. One's more focused on showing me pictures of my dogs or friends dogs. One's more focused on showing me videos of awesome, like people are awesome videos or whatever. Like, and you can opt into the algorithm of your choice. Like there's just a massive amount of experimentation that can happen when you decouple data from the algorithm.
2: Yeah. I, I, I see where you're going with that, but like I think the, the world where that exists is just one where the aggregation point isn't the the front end. Like we're just so used to in the Web2 world where the aggregation point has been the front end. It's been Google.com or the Google search bar or, it, or it's been Facebook or it's been, you know, Airbnb or whatever, right? Like those. are that's the aggregation point is where the customer logs in. With crypto, where you have like the ability to have a, a open source backend and anyone can build a front end to it, I think you've just moved the aggregation point to that backend where like in the so- social media example that you're giving, where anyone can publish this data into this like pool of social media, like content that then anyone can, bu- anyone can build a front end for, and you can use any front end that you want with any algorithm that you want. Well, the aggregation point there isn't like with the front end, with the algorithm, that you're using to suggest your data, it's with like the protocol that holds all that data in the pool on the back end because everyone's going to be integrating in with that same back end. So like, I actually do think that aggregation theory still really holds here and is actually stronger because now if there is any new back end like social media data lake that kind of uh, is created to compete with this one in this hypothetical example, then like any new features from that will be incorporated into the existing dominant one does thus, thus preserving its like aggregated power over that supply chain
3: in a way this is like the fat protocols right
2: yeah in a sense i don't know that it captures value like in in this case like the data lake like that has all your social media data like that doesn't mean it's worth a lot of money mm. right? just be an open source like thing right so i don't think it reinforces that part of fat protocols but i think it does reinforce that like that part of the value stack will capture, like, or will have a lot of power.
0: Zooming out a little bit, we've been talking a bit about sort of heated debates in in, in the space. There's perhaps no more heated debate than you know Bitcoin versus Ethereum. And one thing that has become you know a lot more prominent or, or, or vocal recently is sort of the the voice of Bitcoin maximalists and you know, the hammer for, for for all things sound money. I'm curious how you guys sort of view the, the Bitcoin maximalism you know thesis community and sort of the strengths and weaknesses of, of you know, whether it's uh, Nissan Taleb's kind of concept of the intolerant minority. Yes, yeah, I've been kind of the more
1: publicly bearish one on, on Bitcoin. I've actually made it a pretty major priority this summer to like dive into the, really the nuances of the Bitcoin maximalism arguments. And i say the more time I spend on it, the more inclined I am to believe that it's, pl- it's plausible that they are right. There's a lot of elegance and the simplicity of Bitcoin and like the fact that you can call it truly sound money, the fact that it's truly purely scarce, the supply schedule is fixed. The fact that there is an intolerant minority that will not let it change, even if that is ultimately in a long term detriment. Um, there's a lot of value at creating the shelling point around all of these things. Um, and so I think that actually makes a ton of sense. Um, and could very well end up being, you know, what makes Bitcoin win as send money. I'm also convinced technically that Bitcoin is destined to substantially like, not work as the system scales and as inflation approach zero bitcoin is going to have a lot of problems but there is a tremendous amount of shelling points that like align around the bitcoin vision as it's being proposed today and i think it's pretty reasonable to say that that's worth you need to have some allocation to that to that bet
2: yeah i i mean i am a fan of bitcoin i think that bitcoin like has a real value proposition i'm not a fan of bitcoin maximalism i'm not a fan of maximalism in in any case like i said I, i look the world probabilistically maximalism just like it seems like you're forcing irrationality upon yourself in order to make a point. And like that just like, that's not how my brain works. That's not how I think. Like I I can't convince myself of an irrational point of view just because like it's what I want to believe and believing that something is absolutely certain just seems completely irrational to me. There's no such thing as an absolute probability. So I, I think that being a maximalist will also like just force people into echo chambers, which is not necessarily the healthiest place for your mind to be. And I also think that it it closes you off from innovation. It closes you off from like having an open mind. So while I think Bitcoin is valuable, I think Bitcoin maximalism, like it it is not
0: actually valuable. And I don't, I don't agree with that movement. Uh, Zooming out a little bit, let's talk about sort of where we started with, with, you know, multi coin capital and, and the landscape. Of, of hedge funds. First off, how do you guys think about when you talk internally about the future of, of multi coin capital, sort of the ultimate vision for it?
1: I mean, I, I, I'll say so. I don't think we're in a position to talk like about all the specific details other than uh, we think this market's absolutely enormous. There's going to be opportunities to deploy capital in all kinds of different strategies private markets, public markets, and everything in between. And we're building out a large distributed firm with a lot of different strengths um, that can ultimately to capitalize on all of the above. We have 13 or 14 employees today. If, if I had unlimited operating budget, I would have over 50 employees, which for an investment firm, that's very straight That's very unusual, but we see there's an opportunity to just do all kinds of amazing things across geographies, across early versus late stage and across different types of strategies. And we're going to build a firm to ultimately kind of do all of the above, but we're going to go one step at a time.
3: What are, what are some questions that you guys are trying to answer yourselves right now? Like what are, what are some unknowns that you're trying to like suss out?
1: I mean, we've touched on this before, but like how is governance gonna really work in these systems? We're we're only just starting to see how that's gonna work in EOS, and there's only been really a handful of little tests here and there. Tezos is launching here pretty soon. Tezos is placing even a much stronger emphasis on kind of community engagement. Um I think that's gonna be fascinating to kind of see how that plays out. I'm really curious. I, I'm I'm reasonably sure that in the long run, purely objective Bitcoin is gonna have problems because it's gonna create kind of a system that's suboptimal for everybody. Where can we, if we can we deliver, can we create a solution that is at least mildly subjective, that is ultimately better for everyone? You know, the the kind of Moloch in me says no, and the kind of pessimist in me says no, but the optimist in me, and optimist in me, believes that it's doable. And so, kind of figuring out how do you do governance to make that work is, I think, one of the most interesting large open questions. Yeah,
2: I've been trying to answer some questions around TCRs and like, do TCRs, uh, token curated registries, really work, and does the do the economic models there really work? It sounds quite compelling at first glance. However, you know, doing deeper research found you know several things that are just like unanswered questions. So um, that's a that's a major topic of research and just uh, an area where I'm asking lots of questions right now.
0: Awesome! Thank you guys so much for for coming on the Village Global Podcast. Listeners should check out all all the great writing on MultiCoin Capital. And also follow Kyle and Tushara on Twitter. Thank you guys so much for coming to the podcast. Thanks, Eric. Thanks, Tony. Thanks, appreciate it. Thanks for having us. This was a blast.